The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson Chapter 1 1. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Dr. John Montague was a doctor of philosophy. He had taken his degree in anthropology, feeling obscurely that in this field he might come closest to his true vocation, the analysis of supernatural manifestations. He was scrupulous about the use of his title because, his investigations being so utterly unscientific, he hoped to borrow an air of respectability, even scholarly authority, from his education. It had cost him a good deal, in money and pride, since he was not a begging man, to rent Hill House for three months, but he expected absolutely to be compensated for his pains by the sensation following upon the publication of his definitive work on the causes and effects of psychic disturbances in a house commonly known as Haunted. He had been looking for an honestly haunted house all his life. When he heard of Hill House, he had been at first doubtful, then hopeful, then indefatigable. He was not the man to let go of Hill House once he had found it. Dr. Montague's intentions, with regard to Hill House, derived from the methods of the intrepid 19th century ghost hunters. He was going to go and live in Hill House and see what happened there. It was his intention, at first, to follow the example of the anonymous lady who went to stay at Balachin House and ran a summer-long house party for skeptics and believers with croquet and ghost-watching as the outstanding attractions, but skeptics, believers, and good croquet players are harder to come by today. Dr. Montague was forced to engage assistance. Perhaps the leisurely ways of Victorian life lent themselves more agreeably to the devices of psychic investigation. Or perhaps the painstaking documentation of phenomena has largely gone out as a means of determining actuality. At any rate, Dr. Montague had not only to engage assistance, but to search for them. Because he thought of himself as careful and conscientious, he spent considerable time looking for his assistance. He combed the records of the psychic societies, the back files of sensational newspapers, the reports of parapsychologists, and assembled a list of names of people who had, in one way or another, at one time or another, no matter how briefly or dubiously, been involved in abnormal events. From his list, he first eliminated the names of people who were dead, when he had then crossed off the names of those who seemed to him publicity seekers, of subnormal intelligence, or unsuitable because of a clear tendency to take the center of the stage, he had a list of perhaps a dozen names. Each of these people then received a letter from Dr. Montague extending an invitation to spend all or part of a summer at a comfortable country house, old but perfectly equipped with plumbing, electricity, central heating, and clean mattresses. The purpose of their stay, the letters stated clearly, was to observe and explore the various unsavory stories which had been circulated about the house for most of its 80 years of existence. Dr. Montague's letters did not say openly that Hill House was haunted, 
because Dr. Montague was a man of science, and until he had actually experienced a psychic manifestation in Hill House, he would not trust his luck too far. Consequently, his letters had a certain ambiguous dignity calculated to catch at the imagination of a very special sort of reader. To his dozen letters, Dr. Montague had four replies, the other eight or so candidates having presumably moved and left no forwarding address, or possibly having lost interest in the supernormal, or even, perhaps, never having existed at all. To the four who replied, Dr. Montague wrote again, naming a specific day when the house would be officially regarded as ready for occupancy, and enclosing detailed directions for reaching it, since, as he was forced to explain, information about finding the house was extremely difficult to get, particularly from the rural community which surrounded it. On the day before he was to leave for Hill House, Dr. Montague was persuaded to take into his select company a representative of the family who owned the house, and a telegram arrived from one of his candidates backing out with a clearly manufactured excuse. Another never came or wrote, perhaps of some pressing personal problem which had intervened. The other two came. 2. Eleanor Vance was 32 years old when she came to Hill House. The only person in the world she genuinely hated, now that her mother was dead, was her sister. She disliked her brother-in-law and her five-year-old niece, and she had no friends. This was owing largely to the eleven years she had spent caring for her invalid mother, which had left her with some proficiency as a nurse and an inability to face strong sunlight without blinking. She could not remember ever being truly happy in her adult life. Her years with her mother had been built up devotedly around small guilts and small reproaches, constant weariness and unending despair. Without ever wanting to become reserved and shy, she had spent so long alone with no one to love that it was difficult for her to talk, even casually, to another person without self-consciousness and an awkward inability to find words. Her name had turned up on Dr. Montague's list because one day when she was 12 years old and her sister was 18 and their father had been dead for not quite a month, showers of stones had fallen on their house without any warning or any indication of purpose or reason, dropping from the ceilings, rolling loudly down the walls, breaking windows, and pattering maddeningly on the roof. The stones continued intermittently for three days, during which time Eleanor and her sister were less unnerved by the stones than by the neighbors and sightseers who gathered daily outside the front door and by their mother's blind, hysterical insistence that all of this was due to malicious, backbiting people on the block who had had it in for her ever since she came. After three days, Eleanor and her sister were removed to the house of a friend, and the stones stopped falling. Nor did they ever return, although Eleanor and her sister and her mother went back to living in the house, and the feud with the entire neighborhood was never ended. The story had been forgotten by everyone except the people Dr. Montague consulted. It had certainly been forgotten by Eleanor and her sister, each of whom had supposed at the time that the other was responsible. During the whole underside of her life, ever since her first memory, Eleanor had been waiting for something like Hill House, caring for her mother, lifting a cross old lady from her chair to her bed, setting out endless little trays of soup and oatmeal, stealing herself to the filthy laundry. Eleanor had held fast to the belief that someday something would happen. She had accepted the invitation to Hill House by return mail, although her brother-in-law had insisted upon calling a couple of people 
to make sure that this doctor fellow was not aiming to introduce Eleanor to savage rites, not unconnected with matters Eleanor's sister deemed it improper for an unmarried young woman to know. Perhaps, Eleanor's sister whispered in the privacy of the marital bedroom, perhaps Dr. Montague, if that really was his name after all, perhaps this Dr. Montague used these women for some, well, experiments. You know, experiments the way they do. Eleanor's sister dwelt richly upon experiments she had heard these doctors did. Eleanor had no such ideas, or having them, was not afraid. Eleanor, in short, would have gone anywhere. Theodora, that was as much name as she used. Her sketches were signed Theo, and on her apartment store, in the window of her shop, and her telephone listing, and her pale stationery, and the bottom of the lovely photograph of her which stood on the mantel, the name was only Theodora. Theodora was not at all like Eleanor. Duty and conscience were, for Theodora, attributes which belonged properly to Girl Scouts. Theodora's world was one of delight and soft colors. She had come onto Dr. Montague's list because, going laughing into the laboratory, bringing with her a rush of floral perfume, she had somehow been able, amused, and excited over her own irresistible skill to identify correctly 18 cards out of 20, 15 cards out of 20, 19 cards out of 20, held up by an assistant out of sight and hearing. The name of Theodora shone in the records of the laboratory and so came inevitably to Dr. Montague's attention. Theodora had been entertained by Dr. Montague's first letter and answered it out of curiosity. Perhaps the awakened knowledge in Theodora which told her the names of symbols on cards held out of sight urged her on her way towards Hill House. And yet, fully intended to decline the invitation. Yet, perhaps the stirring urgent sense again, when Dr. Montague's confirming letter arrived, Theodora had been tempted and had somehow plunged blindly, wantonly, into a violent quarrel with the friend with whom she shared an apartment. Things were said on both sides which only time could eradicate. Theodora had deliberately and heartlessly smashed the lovely little figurine her friend had carved of her, and her friend had cruelly ripped to shreds the volume of Alfred de Musset, which had been a birthday present from Theodora, taking particular pains with the page which bore Theodora's loving, teasing inscription. These acts were, of course, unforgettable, and before they could laugh over them together, time would have to go by. Theodora had written that night, accepting Dr. Montague's invitation, and departed in cold silence the next day. Luke Sanderson was a liar. He was also a thief. His aunt, who was the owner of Hill House, was fond of pointing out that her nephew had the best education, the best clothes, the best taste, and the worst companions of anyone she had ever known. She would have leapt at any chance to put him safely away for a few weeks. The family lawyer was prevailed upon to persuade Dr. Montague that the house could, on no account, be rented to him for his purposes without the confining presence of a member of the family during his stay, and perhaps at their first meeting, the doctor perceived in Luke a kind of strength or cat-like instinct for self-preservation, which made him almost as anxious as Mrs. Sanderson to have Luke with him in the house. At any rate, Luke was amused, his aunt grateful, and Dr. Montague more than satisfied. Mrs. Sanderson told the family lawyer that at any rate there was really nothing in the house Luke could steal. The old silver there was of some value, she told the lawyer, but it represented an almost insuperable difficulty for Luke. It required energy to steal it and transform it into money. 
Mrs. Sanderson did Luke an injustice. Luke was not at all likely to make off with the family silver or Dr. Montague's watch or Theodora's bracelet. His dishonesty was largely confined to taking petty cash from his aunt's pocketbook and cheating at cards. He was also apt to sell the watches and cigarette cases given him fondly and with pretty blushes by his aunt's friends. Someday, Luke would inherit Hill House, but he had never thought to find himself living in it. <laughs>